On February 15, 2017, the Ash Center hosted a seminar titled Women in Leadership, Responses to Challenging Times. Panelists included Leah wright Rigger, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at HKS, Melissa Williams, Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto and Senior Visiting Scholar with the Ash Center, and Jane Mansbridge, Adams Professor of Political Leadership and Democratic Values at HKS. Ash Center Director Tony Sage provided a welcome. This seminar was in recognition of Marty Malzi's invaluable years of service as Executive Director of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation. Okay, good afternoon, uh, everybody, and thank you very much uh, uh, for joining us this afternoon for what I'm sure is going to be a very interesting discussion. Uh, as you know, uh, and I'm not going to say too much because I have other opportunities to say it, but this is also uh, recognizing the spirit of Marty's legacy to us here at the Ash Center. For those of you who don't know Marty, uh, this center would not be half of what it is without her, not just the administrative but the intellectual uh, input that she's made and also the tremendous commitment. So it is actually, and this is the one thing I do want to say before I turn it over to Marty, that in the recognition in the spirit of Marty's legacy of leading the Ash Center through uh, change, her fierce protection of the vision of our founding donor, uh, Roy Ash, to protect the fragile institution of democracy, her commitment to providing unique learning opportunities to Harvard Kennedy School students, I'm happy to announce the Martha H. Mousey Award for Advancement of Democratic Governance. <laughs> so we will present this award to a graduating Harvard Kennedy School student, <coughs> excuse me, who demonstrates a unique commitment to making governance more participatory, transparent, responsive, or representative. So we'll be looking for a student whose commitment and impact on healthy democratic governance is evidence in both their scholarship but also in practice, looking back at their past professional experience, their coursework, extracurricular activities here at HKS, and their upcoming uh, career plans. The student who earns the Martha H. Mousey Award will receive a financial award and will be acknowledged for her or his accomplishments during HKS class day activities. So students, be uh, on the lookout <laughs> for the announcement, which will come in early April, when we will begin the submission process. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to Marty. Wow. That was a total surprise. I am so honored and uh, just a little taken aback here. That really means everything to me. I, I, the one thing I, I am very proud of is the Ash Center's commitment to the students here at the Kennedy School. That's something that um, has, has started even before the great leadership of Tony Sage, who needless to say is the director of the Ash Center and has guided us to our current heights, but who has always been committed to students. But even before that, um, the Ash Center has wanted to be part of um, contributing to sort of the advancement of this wonderful student body. And I'm really moved and honored to, to be 
the recipient, you know, anyway, thank you very much. Okay, so my name is Marty Mosey. I am still the executive director of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, and I am extraordinarily honored to be in the presence of three extraordinary women who I thought would be a wonderful tribute to kind of the journey that I have made through time, as it were. I don't want to dwell on that too much. Um, and, um, and, and sort of be here to talk to you about sort of what we're experiencing now at this incredible time and, and also offer different perspectives. So I'm quickly, I don't want to take up a lot of their time, but I do want to um, introduce them. I'm going to start with Jenny Mansbridge. Jane Mansbridge, who's the Charles Adams Professor of Political Leadership and Democratic Values. She's the author of Beyond Adversity, Democracy, and the award-winning Why We Lost the ERA. Now I'm going to pause uh, for editorial remarks on this topic because Jenny really, um, to me, personifies what the Kennedy School and women's leadership is is all about, and I mean that sincerely. I was reading a, a review of her book, this landmark book, and I go back way beyond the ERA, but definitely remember that incredible fight. And Jenny, what what they talked, what she talked about, and one of the reviewers talked about is that the whole idea of democracy, collective democracy, is action that the idea of, of this government is to lead us to action. And I feel like these three women here, I'm going to come around the corner here, Jenny, Melissa, and Leah personify the best of the, the sort of academic world. That they're not, obviously they're brilliant thinkers, brilliant writers, brilliant intellectuals, but they also are committed to real life and real life in action in each one of their careers at different points and still in our history has been about sort of the active nature of intellectual thought in action. Ironically, Jenny's, one of the reasons that Jenny elucidates that the ERA was defeated was that Phyllis Shockley, and I remember her well, said that if it was passed, all kinds of awful things would happen. For instance, we might have women in the army. We could have unisex bathrooms. We could have homosexual parents. And we couldn't possibly pass the ERA, so all these. So that's how prescient Jenny was in thinking about why we didn't. But I also wanted to say that Jenny happens to be the reason I have this job. She, uh, talk about a pig in the poke, she uh, recommended me to the then uh, director of the Ash Center, Gore Rizvi, um, at the recommendation of my current boss. So I just want to thank you, Jenny, from the bottom of my heart. Um, so that's, I'm not going to say a whole lot more about everyone's, because I think we all know who she is. I'm going to move down um, and talk about um, Melissa Williams, who we are really grateful to have here. She is a professor of political science and the founding director of the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto. She focuses on contemporary concepts in political philosophy um, and is also 
working on a two current books, Equality for the Rutledge Series on Concepts in Political Philosophy and Reconstructing Impartiality. Her most recent public book, which is quite a mouthful, is called East Asian Perspectives on Political Legitimacy, Bridging the Empirical Normative Divide. Again, I wanted to say something about Melissa. So Melissa was on the Ash Center's External Review Committee, which is this rather nerve-wracking thing where people come and look at you and judge you as a center and see if you're doing okay. And Melissa uh, was a member of that committee. And like Jenny's commitment to, to action and ideals, Melissa was, to my mind, the most thoughtful member of that committee and really listened to what it meant to run a center like the Ash Center. She really understood, it seemed to me, what, it, what was involved in sort of trying to bring a place like this together. And she herself it was the founding director of this wonderful center for ethics at the University of Toronto. And one of their focuses, again, was on ethics and action, in political action, not just about ethics, which has a kind of a philosophical sound to it, which of course it is, but, but the idea that we all are here to act and can think about ethical action. So I just wanted to say that to her as well. Leah, who is the shining star of the, um, the, the new shining star of the universe <laughs> at the Ash Center, is the assistant professor of public policy here at the Kennedy School. Um, she is the, um, her, well, let me, I'll say a little bit about her research interests. She um, is interested in the political and social history of the 20th century United States and modern African-American history. She focuses very much on race, civil rights, and political ideology. And her book, The Loneliness of the Black Republican, Pragmatic Politics and the Pursuit of Power, was a rocket star of a, of a book somewhat prescient in Lonely Republicans. Lonely no longer, I would, would say. Some of them are still lonely. Leah has been an enormous um, contribution right now to the Ash Center, and I would say to the Kennedy School. She has um, directed here a, a, a series which to me is one of the proudest things I've, I think we've done, which is on race and politics um, in, in America, a, a series that took place all last year and culminated in the conference um, this year on race and justice in the age of Obama, which really I think is a, to end sort of at the end of the spectrum of sort of women putting action where, you know, ideas, you know, coming out of ideas. I think that what Leah's made us do certainly is be honest and put you know, in a way, our money where our mouth is in terms of the Kennedy School's commitment to this incredibly important issue that's facing us now. And I certainly am really proud that you're part of us and very honored that you're here as well. So, so having said all that, I'm going to sit down quickly and let these ladies get on with it. So thank you very much.
Okay, this isn't on the program, but I just listening to Marty, I thought you now all know what has inspired and kept this center together, that intellect, that heart, that commitment, and now you've experienced it. So you, now you know why we love Marty so much. Okay, let's see. Can everybody hear me? Yep. Everyone can hear me. Perfect. So I'm going to try and summarize uh, a whole lot in about seven to ten minutes. Um, I won't be able to do it all, so I would encourage you to ask me about this during uh, the Q&A because I have a whole lot of information that I want to share. Um, but first, I just want to say thank you so much uh, for having me here today. Thank you to the Ash Center. Um, thank you to Tony. Thank you to Marty. Thank you so much. Um, and it really is an honor to be here and to be speaking in front of everyone today. Um, and I know Jenny and, and Melissa will be talking about this a little bit in their sections too, but we really decided that we were going to take an intersectional approach um, and put it into action in our participation in this um, event, which is why we decided to kind of go in an order that we originally hadn't conceived of, but, um, but also our, I think our works build off of one another. So we, we really hope that you will enjoy. Um, so I'm going to start off by talking about intersectionality at the core and really focusing on black women in politics. Um, the, for anybody interested, the photo up here is um, an America, American Gothic Ella Watson photographed by Gordon Parks in 1942, who was a federal worker, um, worked for the federal government, and made roughly about $1,000 a year. Um, and there's a really interesting backstory there that I'm happy to talk about. But I thought it really captured kind of what I want to get at the, to, at the heart of to my talk today, my couple minutes today. Um, so what I want to start off with is why intersectionality matters. What is intersectionality and why does it matter? Uh, the way that I think about it is intersectionality is an, as an analytical lens for understanding the intersection of race, class, gender, sexuality, et cetera, et cetera, other aspects of our identity, and how these categories collide to produce unique and multiple forms of inequality and exclusion. In this case, black women's identities are shaped by their race, their gender, their class, these other aspects, these other dimensions. Now, ignoring or excluding these differences contributes to marginalization, exclusion, and inequality. Even as they are central to feminist and anti-racist movements, black women continue to be marginalized within these very same movements. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But as Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the phrase intersectionality, even though it's a much, much older um, uh, idea than that, but as Kimberly Crenshaw writes, to this day, black women and girls of color continue to be left in the shadows. Now, the thing that I want to stress for my presentation is that without an intersectional approach uh, to politics, to women's leadership, there is absolutely no way to really fully under, uh, address inequality. In other words, I want us to think about intersectionality as an analytic sensibility, right? a way of thinking about identity and its relationship to power. We simply don't have, this is to quote Kimberly Crenshaw, we simply do not have the luxury of building social movements or political movements that are not intersectional, nor can we believe we are doing intersectional works just by saying words. It actually takes action. So what does that mean for black women, gender, and politics? Um, as, a, as it relates to gender and race in particular, but especially also class, I argue that any approach that we look at for women in politics uh, and women in leadership must take an intersectional approach to women's, uh, to the entire scope of things. So let me explain. The realities of black women in politics. 
Black women are the backbone of the modern Democratic Party. I cannot stress it enough, so I'm going to repeat it. Black women are the backbone of the modern Democratic Party. By all accounts, they are now equivalent to what white evangelicals equal to the Republican Party and what white Mormons equal to the Republican Party. They are the most loyal and the most partisan of coalitions. Right? They're also the most reliable. As of data from 2015, uh, we still have to wait for 2016 data, but as of 2015, they had the highest turnout rate of any racial group, any gender group. Right? So they actually surpassed, this is actually pretty notable, that they surpassed white women voters in the 2008 and 2012 election. Um, they also have the highest turnout rate of any uh, non-white voters in midterm elections. Right? So they actually make up an incredibly uh, strong base of support within the um, Democratic Party. Now the problem with that, though, is that there's this paradox, which is that despite this strength, despite making up the, uh, the, really the core of the Democratic Party and really of liberal politics, but also not necessarily just in electoral politics, but also on the ground in terms of activism, et cetera, only uh, and, and, uh, black women are underrepresented in positions of power and in leadership positions, right? So black women make up roughly seven, seven to 8% uh, of the population, but are only, only represented uh, by 3.4% in Congress, right? Less than 1% of statewide elected officials, 3.5% of state legislators, 1.9% of mayors, little to no representation and upper echelons of either parties, hierarchies, or institutions, right? So at every single level, black women are not represented. Um, now, the thing that I want, um, I, I think that I want to really emphasize here, and I'm happy to discuss any of this part uh, during the Q&A, is that um, black women's voices are the most likely to be overlooked in governmental policy making. What does this mean? This actually means that black women are not seeing themselves represented in policies. So they're not seeing policies that are affecting their day-to-day -day lives or that speak to their issues. So this is really a crisis point um, that we're thinking about. And so just kind of some ideas, uh, just some ways of thinking about this. Um, black women right, face significant disparities across um, all kinds of areas. For example, black women are three times as likely as white women to be murdered. Black women are two times as likely as white women to be impoverished. They have the highest rate among any uh, racial group within women of unemployment. There's also the largest wage gap in, uh, in relationship to white men, right? So I think it's important for us to really think about what are the consequences and what is the relationship between black women and their reliability and their strength as core constituents, um, but also what is the reality of uh, how this plays out in policy and in, um, uh, in needs being met. So I have an image up here, um, and I want to just do kind of, kind of a case study of sorts of thinking about the 2016 election and what are the implications of this, right? particularly as we think about women in roles of leadership, women in positions of power, women in politics. Um, now, I have a picture up here that many of you may recognize. It's from the Women's March uh, in January, uh, the Women's March on Washington. Um, and it's actually a pretty powerful image. It went viral um, uh, uh, in incredible ways and showed up kind of everywhere. Um, I think we're all, at least uh, most of us should be now familiar with the fact that 54% of women overall voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, but when we take an intersectional approach to things, right, we actually see that the breakdown is considerably different. 
So 94% of black women voted for Hillary Clinton. Again, I want to stress this, 94% of black women voted for Hillary Clinton. 2% voted for Jill Stein, the rest voted for Donald Trump. 52% of white women voted for Donald Trump. So again, 52% of white women voted for Donald Trump. And I think that was a shock for many people, but not necessarily to black women, who I'll get to in a couple of seconds. Um, when we break it down by class and by educational attainment, it also changes. And I think this is important. I'm happy to talk about this during the q and I'm also happy to talk about how black men and white men um, uh, voted related to um, white women and black women as well. But 91% of black women with college degrees voted for Hillary Clinton. 44% of white women with college degrees voted for Donald Trump. This is where it gets really interesting to me. 95% of black women without college degrees voted for Hillary Clinton. 95%, so at higher rates than black women with, with college degrees. 61% of white women without college degrees voted for Donald Trump. Right? So it's kind of the inverse. Right? There are very, very different things going on, which means there's a dissonance happening in this moment. Now, why is this so important? And just in, as I wrap up, I wanted to share a quote from Jamila Lemieux, who is a uh, writer, a uh, very prominent writer, explaining why she didn't approach, uh, why she didn't participate in the women's movement. And I think it captures some of the sentiments in this uh, image. Right? She said, I'm not going to Washington because I'm really tired of black and brown women routinely being tasked with fixing white folks' mess. I'm tired of being the moral compass of the United States. Many of the white women who will attend the march are committed activists. Sure, absolutely. But for those new-to-it white women who just decided that they care about social issues, I'm not invested in sharing space with them at this point in history. So there's this idea, which, what Jamila is really tapping into with her remarks, is this notion that black women, despite their loyalty, despite being the most reliable group within the Democratic Party and within liberal coalitions, despite really carrying politics and significant change in this country and democratic issues, right, rarely see their issues played out or addressed specifically, that they continue to be marginalized and excluded, that uh, there's consistently been this uh, place of tension within gendered circles as black women are always the last ones to benefit from forward progress. So there are a number of issues, a uh, number of points that we can think about aside from, say, this contemporary moment that we're in right now that I won't get into, but we can think about the first women's uh, suffrage march, right, where black women, are like in, in the black women's club movement, somebody like Mary Church Terrell is relegated to the back, right, behind white men for women's suffrage, a, a women's suffrage movement, right? We can also think about, say, the, uh, the emergence of the black feminist movement in the 1970s and how that comes about as a reaction in part to mainstream uh, feminism, but also the black power movement and uh, this intersectional role that women occupy. So right, I want to end here on a positive note, right? Black women, politics, and leadership, what are the next steps for this? Well, for one, I think leadership and movement politics must take an intersectional approach. I know I've said that over and over again. I cannot emphasize it enough. Right? Conversations around intersectionality stemming from the march right, are incredibly powerful and important. It's a powerful step in the right direction. We see after the march, immediately following the march, 
Google searches, for example, for intersectional, right, or intersectionality skyrocket, right, multiplied by over a thousand percent because people are actually looking into it. So we're starting to see people dip their toes in the water of what intersectionality actually means, which can have long-term consequences if we go beyond mobilization and actually institutionalize those changes. So we're beginning to see right, where a number of black women or women of color were reluctant to um, um, work with, initially work with the Women's um, March on uh, Washington, we actually see a significant uh, number of intersectional changes that are applied to the movement. And then moving forward out of that, we actually see that black women are at the forefront of doing the work, doing this kind of intersectional work um, with white women, Latino women, um, and Asian women too. Um, the other thing that I want to point out is that we begin to see, we're also seeing that black women, despite kind of these um, obstacles, despite inequality, despite exclusion, are on an upward trend when it comes to black women in positions of power and legislative, uh, uh, legislative roles. So one of the ways I think that we might think about it is that the perspectives and priorities of black women cannot be fully expressed without the representation of black women in office. So one of the next steps in addition to activism and in addition to kind of solidarity and networking and thinking about this intellectually is also with mobilizing and organizing around black women in electoral politics. So we might think about this as something like from Fannie Lou Hamer and the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, right? to Shirley Chisholm, right, the first black woman who was elected uh, to Congress in 1968, to somebody like Kamala Harris, right, who has just recently been elected uh, to the Senate. So with that, I think my time is up. Thank you very, very much for your patience, and I uh, look forward to the Q&A. Thank you. Yes, wonderful. So um, I don't have um, such sophisticated slides as, as Leah, but um, I uh, do have a few pictures. Um, before I, I get into the, the link between what Leah just said and what I want to say, I want to um, add my voice of thanks to, uh, to Marty and to Tony. It is such a privilege to uh, be spending the year here having seen uh, what an excellent center the Ash Center is when I was here as a, a, a visiting uh, reviewer, um, it's really a, a great privilege, and, and uh, I'm delighted to be able to partake of the intellectual bounty of this place, having uh, first seen it from a little more distance. So thanks uh, so much to to Marty and to Tony for having me here this year, and to Archon uh, and uh, and to Tim for for roping me into this fabulous uh, panel. Uh, it's really a, a privilege to be here today. What I want to um, speak to is a, a bit more from a theoretical perspective, but picking up on precisely the, the point that Leah concluded with, which is uh, about women's uh, representation in um, or their presence in legislative office. Why does it matter? Why does it matter from a theoretical point of view that there are black women holding representative um, office? Um, why does it matter for uh, women to be present? Why? What's wrong with this picture uh, from the standpoint of democratic theory? Um, and so this picture, as you probably may know, uh, is a picture of, of Trump signing the 
executive order um, banning the use of American resources for um, funding abortion abroad. Um, and so Mike Pence is, is, is standing over this particular one. Um, what I want to try to get to is that the reason why it matters really has to do with the core idea of democracy, namely political equality. So the question is, the puzzle is, again, back to what's wrong with this picture, why isn't, enough, why isn't it enough that women have the vote, that everyone can participate and have an equally counted vote in the democratic process? Why does political equality require um, that beyond that, that there are women and that there are minorities, that diversity of, of the population is reflected in legislatures, specifically with respect to um, the, those groups that, that now and historically have been uh, on the low end of the distribution in terms of social political power. So when we have a, a social structure, a group-based structure of inequality in a society, it's especially important that people who are at the disadvantaged end of that st structure um, are themselves represented, that their member members of those groups are present in legislatures. So I just want to kind of unpack that intuition, which is an old intuition. It's been around for a long time. We can go back to the Federalist, Anti-Federalist debates and find this idea of mirror representation, what's also called descriptive representation. Um, and it remains just as salient now as it was then, but the theoretical unpacking of it has become somewhat more nuanced um, in the years since. So, so the, and the question is why, what's wrong with this picture, or why do we think that this picture, which apparently, this is a Swedish deputy prime minister who <laughs> was signing a, a climate protection, or she was, they were advancing climate protection legislation, and so she uh, had this picture taken deliberately to troll uh, Trump. <laughs> so w what is it that makes us think that, that the, the government represented here, reflected here, is somehow more egalitarian, more inclusive, more democratic than the one reflected in the earlier picture? Um, to paraphrase uh, the, a great, the title of a great piece that Jenny Mansbridge wrote some years back, should or why should women represent women and blacks represent blacks and so on when we're looking at uh, democratic equality in the context of group-structured inequality in the background society. So um, I want to kind of summarize the theoretical, the main theoretical answers to that question. Um, and there are kind of three that I want to, to bring to the fore. The first is that as these pictures, uh, I think, really express quite powerfully, there's a signaling effect of the, rep the presence in legislative bodies of historically excluded or marginalized groups. It sends a message. Some might call this symbolic representation, but that might underplay the importance of this signaling function. Because when blacks are absent from a white majority uh, uh, society's legislature, or when women are absent from a legislature, it sends the signal that, those, that, that citizens from those groups are somehow not important. They're invisible, they're disregarded, and maybe they're disrespected. Whereas conversely, their presence signals the opposite. Not only that they are count regarded as worthy of being represented, 
but also that they are capable of, be, of uh, taking, holding positions of political responsibility and competent, that they can be trusted to serve the public interest. So there's a really important signaling function in legislative diversity that is the first kind of point. But that doesn't get to the question of why when it comes to political representation, to de democratic representation, to political equality in the legislative process and in the unfolding of policy, again, why does it matter that members of historically excluded groups are present in the legislature? And the signaling effect doesn't get at that substantive question. How does equal or fair representation turn on the presence of those uh, groups, members in the legislative body. And there are two main arguments uh, in answer to that that I'll just briefly summarize. Uh, I, I sum them up with the term voice and the term trust. So I'll go first to the, the voice argument. It's really fundamentally an epistemic argument. That is, a claim about the kind of knowledge that's relevant to making public policies that will treat all citizens as equals. The basic idea is that in a society that is structured by deep patterns of group inequality, people, and Leah already got at this uh, with her statistics on, for example, the differential vulnerability of black women to violence. Um, so so the, the experience of uh, social institutions and public policies is going to be different depending on where one is positioned in that overarching and deeply unequal social structure. And so occupying one of these disadvantaged positions in this larger structure of inequality brings with it an experience, a social experience, an experience including the experience of public policies that is relevant, that generates a kind of knowledge that's relevant to making policies that actually work in a way that treats all citizens as equal. Um, and, and so we can get at this epistemic issue when we, uh, through again, I'm going to draw on some contemporary examples. Because um, it, it's important to notice that the voice argument doesn't turn on the supposition that, say, men don't care about looking after women's interests or that they're hostile to women's interests. It's that they lack, on average, and this is a probabilistic claim, so some men may be very well attuned and well informed, but on average, men are going to be less attuned to the ways in which a given policy agenda is going to affect women than are women. So on average, we can expect women to do a better job of uh, bringing to light uh, in the course of discussions about policy the ways in which a given policy proposal might disproportionately affect women um, or, or how women's interest in relation to a particular policy agenda might be better represented or better responded to through a different policy instrument. So I'm drawing this example. This came up in the, uh, in the election campaign after the release of Trump's uh, Hol um, Access Hollywood tape, the, uh, the famous uh, grab him by the whatever uh, <laughs> uh, line that then generated pussy hats in the, in the Women's March and so on. Um, but one of the things that really struck me was that after that tape was released, um, there was a wave of disclosures from women all across the society, every stratum of society, about their experiences of sexual assault and sexual harassment. And I chose this piece because in many cases, the stories came out that the life partners of these women 
never had a clue that this experience was in their past. Women often don't talk a lot about their experiences of sexual assault or sexual harassment, even to the men who love them the most. Um, and so if those same men are the ones making the laws about workplace environment or about sexual violence in policing, uh, they just won't be attuned. They won't have the rele relevant um, data in, in view because uh, of this, uh, because they're not subject to this, th these patterns of assault and harassment. So it's, further, it's not enough just to consult women, to say, oh, well, tell us about your experiences, partly because, uh, well, the, often th these experiences haven't been mobilized um, around, and so they're not out there in public discourse. And there may be other social reasons, as in this case, why the interests, uh, there, there may be uh, in inhibitions about vocalizing those interests. So it's not enough simply to uh, consult them, in part as well because um, it's when sometimes the issues, again, they haven't been mobilized, they haven't been crystallized, to borrow language from, from Jenny's work. Um, and you can't predict in advance when, uh, say, vulnerability to sexual violence may be relevant uh, in a given policy uh, uh, agenda as it unfolds. And so having women in the room uh, who can bring that issue to the table uh, as uh, policy agendas unfold um, makes it much more likely that the policies that emerge from that process are going to be much more responsive to women's uh, interests and experience. Now the second argument is the, um, the trust argument. And that is that, well, we even though we might suppose that on average um, most elected representatives really do have the interests of all their constituents at heart and they really do but they just might lack the knowledge relevant to adv advocating for those interests that's the voice argument nonetheless in a group in a, in a society structured by uh, inequality along group lines those who are privileged in the distribution of power often have an interest in protecting their social position, their relative position, or conversely, um, those who are disadvantaged will have an interest in advocating for the policies that will protect the interest of the disadvantaged. So self-interest matters in, in politics, and if the, the legislature is comprised entirely of, uh, say, wealthy white men, then people who aren't wealthy white men might have some reason, both based on historical experience and, uh, and again, based on this epistemic argument, not to entirely trust those elected representatives to protect their interests. This distrust has been um, expressed in, in for a while now, but again, uh, with greater amplitude in, in recent months uh, as the war on women, particularly with respect to reproductive rights, which were, again, very much uh, uh, a presence at the, the March on Washington um, we're, we're seeing uh, an increasing number of legislative initiatives being passed both at the state level and advanced at the federal level um, that are trying to roll back women's reproductive freedoms. And so that, uh, so in response to that, what's happening is not only are women out there marching, uh, demanding that, that their interests in reproductive freedom be protected, uh, but, coming back to Leah's point, there are also 
um, a lot of women who are saying, okay, we're going to run for office now. And we're seeing a real uptick in the number of women who are not only mobilized, but who are also thinking about running for office. And I think that we can see this particularly as uh, through the lens of the, of the trust argument. Now, I want to conclude by bringing it back. I actually, this wasn't planned, but I, I use that same, yeah, that same picture to bring it back to intersectionality because I think what it's important to say, you know, I framed the voice and trust arguments in terms of women relative to a majority male legislature, but the logic of those arguments point us directly to intersectionality because once we recognize the epistemic argument and the trust argument as having validity for one group, and then when once we add to that the recognition that there is no such thing as a homogeneous group and that, uh, that the intersection of, of racial power structures, of gendered power structures, of class-powered structures generate different experiences of uh, vulnerability, marginalization, inequality, um, depending on where you are on that much more complex social structure. And so the good news is, um, so uh, this woman um, was, um, just make sure I get her, her name right. She's really quite brilliant. Um, uh, Paula Wood, no, that's not right. Sorry, I had it written down and now I've, I've missed it. But, oh, Angela Peoples, Angela Peoples, here it is. So she is doing a, quite a lot with this um, performance. And one is that she's reminding white women that actually they have, uh, a, as a class, put race before gender uh, in terms of the overall electoral decision that they made. And she's wearing a hat that says, stop killing black people, showing that, okay, well, vulnerability to police violence isn't an issue for most white women. It is very much an issue for black women. And so bringing those two things together, again, brings us back to the idea of intersectionality and the importance that, um, that women of color uh, are represented in legislatures. And there's, there's a number of good news uh, take-homes from this. One is that, uh, yeah, among the women who are thinking of running for office, as Leah mentioned, there are a lot of women of color who are entering the fray. We can also look back to the 2016 elections, and what we see is that um, although the number, the total number of women in legislatures, both at the federal level and at the state level, remained more or less constant. It hasn't increased a lot in recent years. It hasn't really declined, but it hasn't increased. But the diversity of the women in legislative office has increased a lot. So if we look back to the earlier year of the woman, 1992, when there was a big upsurge in the number of women in Congress, they were mostly white women. There weren't very many women of color. If we look now, this new year of the woman, 2016, it's a much more uh, diverse group. So intersectionality is becoming a political reality in legislatures. It's becoming a political reality in ordinary everyday discourse. So intersectionality is now common commonplace uh, term in, in everyday. It was there all over the Women's March, even though in very imperfectly realized uh, as a discourse. It's now taken hold, and it's taken hold transnationally as well. So. Um, so even though uh, there are reasons to be concerned about the need for women's uh, uh, heightened mobilization right now, there's a lot of uh, reason to be hopeful that the democracy that we get out of this period is going to be a much more equal one.
Um, so this is a map of all the um, marches. It was done before the actual marches. Um, and I want to talk about organizing. That's when we talk together, the three of us, trying to parcel out uh, what we all should do. They deci we decided that I should do organizing. And, but before, I, I've already said how wonderful Marty is. But one of the things you may not know is when asked what kind of gift um, the, the Ash Center could give her, she said, she didn't say a Harvard chair or, you know, a, a plaque or, she said, well, I'd really like to have a panel and, and that's, I feel very honored to be able to be part of that panel. It shows you the kind of person she is, that that's what she asked for. So, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to quickly, I want to leave us some time for uh, questions, so I'm going to just talk about, uh, when we talk about organizing as women, who, what kind of women, what, uh, and uh, so here we go. Who, who are women? Well, women are anybody who identifies as a woman in 99.9% .9 of the cases. There are a few times when people identify as women to make trouble. And so you can't just give that as a total, idea, uh, but that's what I mean, that's gonna be what I mean. Now, what does it mean to be a woman politically? As, as Melissa mentioned, it's to some degree a collection of shared experiences, but they're somewhat shared experiences. That's what intersectionality is about, is that each of us has a, a thousand million, a thousand million uh, identities. We're all parts of different things. And so when something happens to us, even if it's a common thing for women, such as the experience of sexual assault or violence, we're going to filter that through our lens from, of the rest of our life. Um, and that means that it's tremendously important whenever you organize uh, to keep intersectionality at the core. And that's, uh, that was the title that Leah chose, and that's the right title for all three of our uh, presentations. As we do this, we ha it's going to help us to keep intersectionality at the core, because otherwise we could be uh, sort of fall into a kind of essentialist feeling of that there's some deep or core that is woman, uh, you know, <laughs> and that it's the same way everywhere. And it really helps uh, kind of to understand intersectionality helps us avoid essentialism as well. Second point that I want to make, and I'm really going to keep these points short because we to get on, um, is um, some women identify as feminists, not all women. In the very first survey that ever asked the question, do you consider yourself a feminist? Um, black and African women, 68% said that they identified as a feminist compared to 55% of white women. That's a big bit more. And this isn't just this one question. Now, these, these, these figures in general are rather high, and that's because this turns out to be a terrible question. Um, <laughs> and the reason is that it forces you, there's no midpoint. It forces you into taking a stand as a feminist or not a feminist. So given that forced choice, 68% of African-American women and 55% of white women chose feminist. When you just ask the question, do you consider yourself a feminist, which is not asked until later, unfortunately, so we don't have the very good comparative data, 
um, approximately 35% of American women, but still more blacks than, than whites, always. No matter if in the question period, if you want to see another set of, I'll just show you a whole ton of questions about support for the women's movement. And black women pretty much always come out considerably more supportive than white women. So this is, they not only voted for Hillary Clinton, they've been there from the very beginning of the women's movement, supporting it more than white women. Um, so now I want to talk a little bit about or how this plays out in organizing. Um, and in particular, I want to refer to this march we just had. Um, and I want, for those of you, probably a good half of this audience, maybe more, hasn't been very much involved in organizing marches. You might have been to one, but you, and I myself have not been involved in organizing marches. But I've, I've watched marches being organized. And as I watched, I saw very, very classically, obviously, the dynamics of privilege going on in this organization. So one of the dynamics, and this is going to be true of you, if any of you who are in a student organization, any of you who are in any kind of organization, if you're white, pay attention to these dynamics. If you're of color, <laughs> Pay attention to these dynamics. And I'm depending on your personality, you can get furious, frustrated, or you can try to be patient. Um, it's, it's very upsetting. These dynamics are very upsetting. Um, and I want to just walk through the, the fact that they are dynamics that will happen in pretty much every organization unless you pay a lot of attention to it. So first of all, white women are likely to just phys physically outnumber the other minorities. So let's say minorities are so, you know, let's say black people are 17% of the population in the United States. If there's 17% of them in a march, most people looking at that march are going to say, that's pretty much a white march, because there's only 17% black people. So, and that means that white themes, white experiences, and when we're talking about shared experiences, the white cast on things, those things are going to just dominate without any necessarily conscious prejudice or anything. That's just going to come out. Not only that, the, those white women are more likely to have more money. They're more likely to have some flexible time. They're more likely to have organizational contacts so they can pick up a phone or send an email to a whole bunch of people. Um, and that's, again, going to multiply the original being outnumbered, these dynamics of privilege here. And so this is just, uh, you can go, by the way, anybody wants to get it, I'll give them the e URL. This is a great um, chart of all the people who, uh, who actually uh, did, man did go to the march, and it comes t uh, up to about 4 million. Um, and that's just in the United States. That's not abroad. Um, but that doesn't, my college roommate, for example, marched in, uh, what's it called, Salisbury, Connecticut. And she was telling me about the march, and I noticed that's not on the list. So I said, well, how, ma how many people were there? She said, well, I think about 200. So, so this list, this 4 million, does not count the many, many people who somehow or other didn't know about that URL, which my <laughs> college roommate didn't, to report in that they had their march in, in their town. But that 4 million um, is going to look different uh, depending on how much attention people are spending to c counteract the dynamics that I just mentioned. So, 
supposing you're going to be involved in a march, uh, what should you do? First of all, you should remember to make intersectionality a very, very, very high priority because it's not, the point is, it's not if you're white, it is not going to come naturally. If you're a person of color, you may very well not be want to get involved with that organization that this, these white women are drumming up. So this is, is, is going to be, a, is, ought to be a high priority for all of us no matter what our color. It's fantastically important to work with existing organizations because although a lot of white women have all these contacts, particularly for uh, Latino women, black women, uh, other women of color, a lot of their lives when they are organized are in organizations that have to do with race and or churches that are, um, that are of color, are, are, are predominantly black. So if you're starting a march, it is extremely important to make a conscious effort to reach out to those organizations, not just to say, would you like to join our march, <laughs> but as Leah used the word, forefront, and, and letting people, having more people of color see their issues at the forefront. Actually, people who are not of color often don't see those issues just the way men often don't see the issues of women. And so it's extremely important to make contact and then say, how would you do it? What actually produce, you know, get people into the leadership and then step back? Because hard as it is, I mean, Mimosa pointed out, those that she, her words were, those in power have an interest in protecting their position. And I thought, yes, and that's true in women's organizations as well. It's not a conscious issue. People who are in women's or running women's or doing women's organization, being active, they are not out for the most power for themselves. They would be doing something else other than being in a women's organization. But nevertheless, when you get active, you get active because you care and so forth, and you care in a particular way that is inflected by your own experiences. If you're white, it'll be inflected by certain white experiences. If you're from the Northeast, if you're from Montana, if you're black, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the way you see it. And when other people suggest doing it a different way, you think, that's not as good a way as my way. And I can speak for this. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm good at, at a meeting saying that I don't think other people's ways are good as my way. Um, so that's, that's extremely important to work with those organizations and devote the resources, money, time, organizational connections to the thing. What's another thing to remember? This comes out of my ERA book. Remember that social movements are many-headed, um, and the, this march was an example. When you have a movement as opposed to an organization, you can't exclude people very easily. So you can maybe have them not part of the program, but you can't exclude them from marching, or you shouldn't exclude them from marching. And that's wonderful, that many-headed quality, because it means that social movements are very quick on the dime to respond to events or to local circumstances and so forth, very innovative, creative, and so forth. But it also means that those different heads are going to come up with different policies. So for example, in the ERA uh, thing, um, in the area struggle, the, I was in Illinois, and the ERA Illinois 
was getting all these women to go before their legislature saying, this is not going to have anything to do with abortion. If you put, if you put the, an ear in, in the Constitution of the United States, it won't have any effect at all on, on abortion, because if it did, those legislators weren't going to vote for it. So we were saying, we had nuns coming up and saying, you know, it won't have anything to do with abortion. <laughs> Meanwhile, the ERA forces in Hawaii were bringing a court case under the Hawaii state ERA to get funding for abortion. Well, that's many-headed. That's conflict. Those were absolutely in direct conflict, and that'll happen with signs at a march as well. So it's very important when you're getting those groups together at the beginning to allow enough time to negotiate out what the issues are going to be, what the main slogans are going to be, who the speakers are going to be. As, you, as people of color become the forefront, there's not going to be complete agreement among People of color, there's not going to be complete agreement across the board. As you bring in all those organizations, you're going to have to negotiate, and you just have to face it. And don't blame each other for being ornery and stupid and, and, and power-hungry and so forth. That's just going to happen. So that the final thing to remember is the dynamic of deafness. Even before there was social media and all the echo chambers we hear about today, um, it was still the case that even in the Equal Rights Amendment, which is 1972 to 1982, before many of you were born, um, even then, the dynamics of the social movement meant, mean that people talk to people like them. That means that's going to tend to mean that white women talk to white, with white women, black women talk with black women, upper-class black women talk to upper-class black women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to mean that people are talking to one another, and that's going to be creating conflict within the movement, and it's also going to be creating conflict because none of us are going to be listening to the opposition. Um, and that's not good for a political movement. It's not good to lis not listen to your opposition. So that's the dynamic. So just as a summary, uh, you've got to make intersectionality a high priority. You've got to recognize that this is many-headed and going to produce conflict, and you've got to learn how to listen and negotiate even among your own group. So, but the good news, the good news about all this is actually women are an amazing group for practicing intersectionality because we're half of er almost every other group. <laughs> and so, so we are, you know, any kind of march that's billed as a women's march is going to be, bring, ought to be bringing in um, everyone. But using that potential is going to require some of the thought that I just suggested. So thank you. Um, so how, how are we doing, Melissa, how are we doing question and answer? Um, the, the people are using the microphone? Okay. Okay, so uh, just put your hand up, and someone will bring a microphone. Scott will be the first person to ask a question. Well, thank you. When Melissa was um, trying to remember the name of that woman, I thought she could have mentioned any of the three of you, as you clearly fit that category of you know brilliant c um, colleagues. So thank you. This was great. Um, one little datum that Leah put up, I, I found just stunning. And I, I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about it. And that is, I think it was state legislators, the percentage of black women 
was even much lower. I think it was 1%. I, I probably would have. It's, it's 0.6%. Okay. In actual, as of 2015. I, th I mean, if anything, I would have expected more black women at a very local, you know, at a lower level. So what what's going on, and what can be done to address that? I mean, this is this is, you know, the the dynamics of state politics has changed so profoundly in in the U.S. in recent years, with you know, f for people who ha have um, a more egalitarian ethos in ways that are very concerning. Yeah, so there are a couple of different ways to answer this to answer this question. The first very quick way, thing that I'll say is that um, the trend of, of black women and women of color being involved in um, politics is an actually is a relatively new trend. So you have, say, for example, um, Shirley Chisholm, who's at the you know the state national level in '68, but in terms of say municipalities, in terms of um, state legislatures, in terms of, of mayors, that doesn't begin to happen until the 1980s. Um, another way of looking at it is that um, black women tend to do best in minority-majority districts. So areas where minorities are the majority, but they still don't fare as well as their um, black male counterparts. Um, the interesting thing is that they face a number of obstacles, right? So this is where this kind of intersectional lens comes in again, which is that they face stereotypes that aren't just about, say, gender, but also about race, that they are discouraged um, from running um, at much, much higher levels, that they are primaried much more often than any other group, um, and then also that they don't, I think this is to, to Jenny's point, that they don't have the same level of affluence or um, social networks in terms of fundraising to tap into. And as we know, that even local politics is incredibly expensive um, in order to run, um, in order to, to become part of that. Um, the interesting thing there is that, um, and Rutgers uh, is their Center for American, uh, for Women in American Politics is doing some interesting research on this, that they're actually finding that this area is the, is the area that has the most potential. Right, so that if you can plug black women into networks, particularly networks, financial networks, and kind of organizing networks, that they are much more likely to be elected on this local level, um, and that we're seeing a tiny, a slight. If you know, if I tell you that 0.6 is an is an uptick, you're going to look at me like it's crazy, but it actually is. Um, the other thing, one other thing that I'll, I'll just say and I'll end it here is that um, uh, black women tend to be concentrated, this is the majority minority part, um, in certain parts of the country. Um, so I believe at last check there are 10 states that don't have any black women, period, um, in state legislatures. Um, so, I mean, this is incredibly important, right? Um, this is why, I mean, Mia Love is not in the state legislature. She's uh, in, in Congress. But um, we were having an interesting discussion the other day about is there significance in, say, somebody like Mia Love, who is a conservative Republican, winning office in Utah in an area that is predominantly and overwhelmingly white, right? So majority, <laughs> a majority white district. Um, and what is that, you know, what does that say, I think, for um, women in politics and women of color in politics? Can I uh, yeah. just add to that? Um, a book just, you, would, you won't have known it because this book just got published last month, <laughs> but uh, a woman named Shauna Shamas 
uh, has published a book uh, called um, Out of the Running about why millennials don't run for office. And she uh, interviewed people at the Harvard Law School, at Suffolk Law School, which sends a large, a lot of, a huge percentage of the Massachusetts legislature comes from Suffolk Law, and um, at the Kennedy School, and asked a, a random sample, oversample of people of color, um, whether they had ambitions to run for office. And surprisingly, black men in all three uh, institutions were even, had more political ambition even than white men. But black women were among the very lowest in political ambition because of all the obstacles they saw to running for office. So when you think of a democratic committee making up its committee, it'll check, the, a, a black man will check the black box, and a white woman will check the woman box, and then they're done, right? They've covered gender, and they've covered race. So that intersection, until very recently, almost disappeared in the consciousness of people who were doing things like creating slates or creating um, delegates or any time there was, is a, was a mass that that, so, um, so if you look just at political ambition, you find that black women see, I think, quite realistically, more obstacles than any other group. Can I just add one, one or two really quick notes um, in response to this question? So one, Leah mentioned uh, majority-minority districts, and so that's you know part of the electoral system design. And, and so looking to electoral systems as ways of enhancing uh, minority representation is really important. That's one technique. It, it, it is a, 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 a double-sided uh, technique because uh, by concentrating minorities within uh, territorial districts, you're actually concentrating their vote and increasing the likelihood of uh, a larger number of Republican seats. If those minority districts tend to vote Democratic, then you're going to get more, more Republican legislatures that way. So there's a trade-off there. Um, but, um, but on the local level, another mechanism that really works and has been empirically demonstrated to work is, is using multi-member districts and some mechanism of proportional representation, whether it's cumulative voting or alternative voting or um, uh, STV is in Cambridge, which I know people hate, but uh, it still does get more minorities and women into office. That's not such a likely prospect at uh, the level of state legislatures, at least at this stage in political debates in the U.S. Um, it does come onto the agenda in Canada from time to time at the, at the, high, at the provincial, uh, even the federal level. Um, uh, but another, go, going to the state legislatures, another factor behind this also must be the uh, Republican dominance in the, in the state legislatures, which is its own story, but if, you know, as we know from Leah's story, uh, uh, black women tend to vote Democratic. If you've got other dynamics that are uh, generating strong Republican dominance, then that is also going to reduce the number of opportunities for, um, for minority women in, in the elected office. Thank you. I'm Alan from the Kennedy School. I'm from Uganda. Thank you for a fascinating insight into the, the whole issue around intersectionality and how we can build on it. One of the challenges I'm seeing is how does the women's movement here in the U.S. build upon the momentum 
practical steps to build upon the momentum of the matches in Feb, in Jan. I ask because in Uganda, I did lead a number of matches and protests for women's rights. And the very first time we actually marched as women, who are not just women, Christian, married women, but lesbians, sex workers, it was amazing. But building onto that momentum proved to be very difficult because people soon go back into their own sections okay. and trying to break those barriers becomes a challenge. So if it's something that is safe, so for instance, uh, violence, there is violence both within the sex workers community, within the mainstream community, it's easy to coalesce around that. But when there are tougher issues like what we are facing now in the US around issues, I mean, there are bigger issues that happen, the Russian spy issue, that the, the tend to sort of put us into disarray. What are the, some of the practi practical steps that we can really see to build this movement uh, going forward? Thank you. I'll say a little bit about, about that. And one of the things, and it's still incipient, but one of the things that I'm hopeful about is the, um, the indivisible movement, which is modeled on the Tea Party movement, which is it's, uh, on the Republican side. It's trying to generate a Democratic equivalent the, the basic organizational structure is to, you know, to translate mobilization into organization through local groups that are then putting pressures on elected officials at all levels of government, but based on local solidarities. And I'm seeing a lot of, um, you know, I've, so I've been looking into this and watching it unfold. I'm, you know, it, it, may, it may fizzle out, but uh, what I am seeing is that um, a lot of the mobilization that we saw in the Women's March around Planned Parenthood, around ACLU, other already organized structures, as, as Jenny pointed out, are finding their way, and the intersectional discourses are to some degree finding their way into these indivisible groups, which are then generating uh, demands on uh, elected officials. So that, I think, is hopeful, if not yet promising. <laughs> So I'll, I'll just say real quick, I think um, th my favorite quote that I like to use here is L. Baker's concept of spade work, right? So this idea that mobilization is a short-term thing. And it's great because you can get a lot of people together and some people get their feet wet for the first time. They're like, wow, I'm involved. Um, and I think this was to, to Jenny's point. But that spade work is the digging, the toiling, the long-term work. Right? That's not one month, that's not six months, that's not a year, right? That these things take time. Mm -hmm. So one, looking for change that over time um, and doing the kind of work, um, institution building that goes into this, um, but also ensuring that you are, you are tapping into networks and creating, also creating networks um, that connect these people. You now have, I think, what was that number, Jenny? Four million people? who are fired up and ready to go. Um, and the interesting thing from that is that they did collect data after the, um, the, the marches and that there have been institutions that are trying to turn that into something. So I think this is, you know, these are, these are some of the things to think about um, moving forward. And, and I have um, just two words to say for those of you who are from the United States. Democratic Party. I've been somewhat active in p political things ever since um, 1958. And somebody asked me the other day, well, is the, what's the story on the Democratic Party in Massachusetts? Is it like hacks? Or good, are they good people, bad people? I, I had no idea. I know nothing about the Democratic Party. A lot of movement people 
are focused on the national government, national issues, and they don't know anything about the Democratic Party. And, it's, and so I would say for people who want in the U.S., and for people abroad, it's probably the same there. Those parties are probably really corrupt, <laughs> very off-putting. Um, that's why a lot of people didn't want to run for office in the United States. But they're where a lot of the action happens. And so it, it's a good thing to work through. Um, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Toyosi Akirile. Um, I come from Nigeria and um, made career master's student and public administration student at the Kennedy School. One of, um, in 2012, when we young people led the Occupy Nigeria protests against the government of Nigeria for raising the price of petrol without due notice to the citizens, one of the quotes that became so important to me at that time was Medellin Albright's, there's a special place in hell for women who do not support other women. I'm very worried about speaking consistently about women in politics and how women can drive change without constructively working for, for women to be able to support and sponsor other women within structured frameworks. Let me break it down. In Nigeria, I wrote an article two years ago saying so many godfathers everywhere. Where are the godmothers? And I wrote that article because I realized that men consciously make the effort to be able to make sure that they have boys that succeed them at every level, in private sector, in, off, in public office, and in different situations. Um, I don't see that conscious commitment on the part of women. So we can keep talking for another 100 years, but this talk is not going to cook any rice. I think that we need to be able to move on from the rhetoric of how do we organize women for change? And I believe that politics is so crucial. I'll tell you because I know that businesses are great, NGOs are good, but the policies that determine the destinies of citizens and countries are in the hands of politicians. Therefore, whatever it is we do, if the, um, if the, if the National Assembly in Nigeria or the Congress in the United States doesn't make certain types of laws, certain things can never happen, no matter how much we march on the streets. They decide what they want our matches to, to influence in the Congress and in political office. How, so my question is, what are women doing to be able to support younger other women? The women in your Uta community, for example, Professor Leroy Rigger, I came to your CPL seminar, probably the, one of the most, the highlights of my time in the Kennedy School. Oh, and so I'm, I'm wondering, like a young budding professor like you, where are the women of your community? who have so much money? How do we put the collective wealth of women to work? The men are making the boys. When they're quitting office in their Fortune 500 businesses, they already have the men who would succeed them. Who are the women that will succeed the older women? We need to understand that we, the young women, are the legacies of the older women. At 33 today, there are so many things I don't qualify for anymore. Therefore... <laughs> My consistent relevance is dependent on how many young women that I raise to take on from where I've stopped. Mm. And so I think that that's where the conversation should be going. Yeah. Because more women can get into office without money. We can do these PowerPoint presentations till next year. 
But if women don't have enough money to run for office, if they don't have the right education, they don't have the right political awareness, they don't have the right type of confidence and the right type of enlightenment, women will never win elections. They will never become CEOs of companies. And men would always make the decisions that favor other men like them. I thank you. Does anybody, you know, I, I think that that's a, a very good exhortation to all of us to, and particularly um, there's a women in public policy program at the Kennedy School, <laughs> and that's trying to, to do just this, but it's not enough. So it's an exhortation to all of us, male and female, to do more to support any of the women in office or in academia, I may say. Um, there are several people who've got questions, and I'm sure they're terrific questions, but we're coming very uh, close to 6 o'clock, and we want to have time for a wonderful reception. All the people here are committed to democracy. All the some of the people are good friends of Marty. We, I know we're going to have a good time uh, hanging out, having a drink, having something to eat, and getting to know one another. So thank you very much, everyone, for coming. And hooray to Marty! You've been listening to ASHCAST, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. For more information about the Ash Center, upcoming events, and future podcasts, please visit our website, ash.harvard.edu, and follow us on social media at Harvard Ash.